0: Prepare to be astonished! It's that time again. Let's get started. From the Clatsop County Historical Society, an adventure in history, with Matt Burns and Alana Quila. You should never be allowed to talk to people. Some people without brains do an awful lot of talking.
1: And now, with today's adventure, it's Mac and Alana. Good evening and welcome to another adventure in history. We're so glad you're joining us this evening. Um, It's just us and our very special listener. Loyal listener. Loyal listener who's become our sort of official um, audience.
0: She's our timekeeper and telling us uh, that we got to wrap it up.
1: Do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Yes. Hi, Marie Cuarón. All right. Thank you, Marie.
0: And you're here every time. So you have to, you get to, to hear this in person, and then and then you get to listen to it on the radio later.
1: <laughs> Marie is my sister in law. We live across the street from each other, so we get to do lots of fun activities. And she has become again this official official listener, and she does give a thumbs up or a thumbs down at the end of the
0: show. Because they're not all gems. They
1: are not. Every
0: now and then we bomb. Yes. Every now and then, we're just not very good.
1: But Marie's very nice about it. And yes. Is coming back. Thank <laughs> you. Thanks for being with us, Marie. Glad you're here. My your pleasure. Yes. <laughs> and we
0: know who the weak lick is. Usually, it's me. Yes, we do. It's not the guest, and it's not you.
1: <laughs> no, so. not at all.
0: <laughs> so we had the uh, exciting event we didn't talk about last week, because we had a guest. Yes. But since it's just you and me on the air tonight, mm-hmm. uh, so we did the first Seelig Award, and we gave it the... Uh, uh Selig was the guy that did The Fisherman's Bride, uh-huh. the very first film filmed in Oregon with a plot in 1909 here in Astoria. And again, I've I warned the audience I could do a whole hour on Selig because the guy just fascinates me. He's the guy that creates Hollywood. Okay. So that's why we named the award. But with the Oregon Film Museum uh, expansion project that we've been talking about a little bit. And you're going to hear more and more about that. We thought part of our mission is educational, and we want to inspire the next generation of filmmakers, young filmmakers. So we found this wonderful young filmmaker, Faven, Rose Solomon that did an ex- a uh, documentary mm-hmm. uh, about her dad and a couple of other guys, some Ethiopian refugees in the 80s that came to the Pacific Northwest and their experiences. I love it. It was a very powerful, 20-minute. My wife was there. She was crying.
1: Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: but uh, we gave the award, and it included a $1, stipend, uh, a $1,000 stipend and a very large, heavy glass paperweight <laughs> with <laughs> her name on it. And, Pretty cool, and though. The first... League Award winner.
1: And so did she do any Q&A with the audience? Oh, yeah, quite oh. a bit.
0: Yeah. See, it was very moving.
1: I love that. I mean, I would think as a filmmaker, that's what is lacking so much, right? You mm-hmm. get to show your art, but you don't get to hear what people's thoughts are. And so, in, I mean, how cool is it? Immediate to, feedback. To provide yeah. that audience.
0: Yeah. It was very funny. Somebody in the, in the audience said, well, you interviewed just three men. And I happen to know a number of Ethiopian women
1: <laughs> refugees,
0: and, and you know, do you have any thoughts of interviewing them? And it was very funny because Faven said, I'd like to meet them because the only ones I talked to had no desire to be on camera.
1: Oh, interesting.
0: And she's like, I would love to have included yep. some women in this as sure. well.
1: So, but this was their story. Yes. I mean, sometimes you have to, especially in 20 minutes, you have yeah. to limit your scope. Yeah. So was her dad <sighs> there too? No. Okay. they
0: They had a premiere because she's part of a, a, an organization, a nonprofit that you've heard me on the radio talk about called Outside the Frame. That works uh, with mostly um, unhoused, homeless kids, youth, and helping them tell their stories. How to tell their stories, and part that. of that is through film. Mm-hmm. And uh, Faven went through this program, and that's she was kind of an alumni, and has a mentor that is part of that group that helped her through this process, and uh, it's just an amazing organization. But they had a premiere for it.
1: Oh, yeah, And nice. I don't
0: know, it wasn't at the Hollywood Theater, but someplace in Portland. And uh, they had like 90 people come, 70 people, something like that. Uh, a lot of family and yeah. friends. But uh, this was kind of the first she'd, I don't think she'd ever been to Astoria. The mentor had. Right, okay. Um, so it came down, we put them up in a hotel, and they showed the movie at the Liberty Theater. Oh, and cool. Nice little audience, and questions, Q&A, and she gets an award, and... Gets her trip paid for and something to put on her resume.
1: The story behind the story. So she has her own powerful story. Yeah.
0: And I'm hoping, we didn't get into this with her, but uh, I'm hoping that she'll, this is not the finished product, that perhaps it'll be an expansion of this Mm -hmm. documentary into something longer, but don't know. Okay. That was one of the good questions people were asking about. How do you edit down and she said oh each one of these interviews was four hours plus and right. then to interview you know to cut it down that do the editing is really mm-hmm. tough of what stories don't you include
1: oh so many right I mean that's where authors are born so yeah
0: that was very nice and it obviously resonated because the executive director of the organization emailed me over the weekend and I just made a passing like oh we'll have to have you here next year to give the award to the to next year's winner and I'd never put that in an email. I'd never mentioned it to any of the staff of this organization. And the executive director said, oh, we love the idea of her coming back. And Right. <laughs> so, what's the date? Let's yeah. get it on our calendar. Yeah, so <laughs> we might have, we might have uh, definitely started something.
1: Good. There. I love it.
0: So what's the uh, word of the day?
1: So this is an old word, lost word, historic word that's not used anymore, but we could definitely bring it back. And so today's word is snool. Snool. S-N-O-O-L. It's a
0: noun. Oh, snool! It's not. I was gonna. I was guessing there's maybe like a W in the middle of it. No. Yep. Um, snool, and it's a noun. Yep. Um, I believe it is a chair or a stool that you take a nap on. Oh,
1: that's a good guess, but you are incorrect. It is an <laughs> obedient, submissive person who willingly bows to authority.
0: Oh. Yes. A, a snool. You're nothing but a snool. See, I
1: figured since we weren't interviewing a guest today, yes. this would be the time to bring some of these words. I feel like
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I like that I'm never right. Right, like You're just totally never. guess, and it's like not even, no. not even close. But,
1: but you have good, you know. I mean, <laughs> the definitions you come up need interesting words too.
0: Someday I'm gonna nail it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm gonna like read read your books that you use as reference and memorize <laughs> them, and like have the word already there.
1: Oh, that would be too smart.
0: All right, so. Yep. um
1: This day. Tomorrow.
0: So the uh, things that happen tomorrow, things to uh, use as story icebreakers. Uh, Let's see. So this is November 20th. 1789. New Jersey is the first state to ratify the Bill of Rights. Oh. Way to go, New Jersey. Yes, good job. Um, Yeah, i got to read more into that because I was surprised.
1: It's smaller. When
0: I saw it was New Jersey.
1: Right. I mean, maybe a little easier.
0: (laughs) All right. I really like this one. 1820. The American whaler... Essex, Essex, E-S-S-E-X, which hailed from Nantucket, Massachusetts, is attacked by an 80-ton sperm whale 2,000 miles from the western coast of South America. The 238-ton Essex was in pursuit of sperm whales, specifically the precious oil and bone that could be derived from them, when an enraged bull whale rammed the ship twice. Wow. So it came back. It was like mad. (laughs) It wasn't an accident. It hits it once. And not satisfied, it circles and comes back and hits it again, rams the ship twice, and capsizes the vessel. The 20 crew members escaped in three open boats, but only five of the men survived the harrowing 83-day journey to the coastal waters of South America, where they were picked up by other ships. 83 most,
1: days. How 83, did they make it?
0: Most of the, funny you should ask, and okay. you're going to regret that you asked oh, no. this. Most of the crew resorted to cannibalism <gasps> during the long journey. Uh. And at one point, men on one of the long boats drew straws to determine which of the men would be shot in order to provide sustenance for the others. Three other men who had been left on a desolate Pacific island were saved later. Yes. So out of 20, only, uh, only five. And this is the... Uh, The inspiration for Herman Melville's classic novel, Moby Dick, 1851, was inspired by this story. Okay. I've always loved this story because...
1: One point for the sperm whale. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) isn't there like,
0: like right now, aren't there like a bunch of uh, killer whales? Yes. Off Spain or someplace? The same
1: thing, right? I mean...
0: They're getting organized.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, we have always known this is a pretty intelligent species, right? I mean... That's right. they their communication... The skills are superb. I mean, just and like... that's
0: why Kirk and Spock had to go into the future to get whales and bring them back, or come <laughs> right. into the past and get whales to take to the future. Oh, how interesting!
1: <laughs> and that's uh, yeah, and the fact that it's documented so long yeah. ago.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it's a uh, fun one. Yeah, I was going to quiz you on this one, but I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Uh, 1902, Gio La and Henry Desegrange create the Tour de France bicycle race. Oh, okay. 1902. I would not have thought that that early. Right. If I'd had to guess, I would have been like eh, nineteen thirty. Yeah. All right, nineteen thirty-eight. The first documented anti-Semitic remarks over U.S. radio.
1: Oh, okay.
0: So first documented. documented it definitely right. happened before then. Sure. And it was by a guy named Father Conklin. And we're going to talk a little bit more about him.
1: Okay. Let's get into that. Yeah.
0: 1938, though. Uh, 1958, American puppeteers Jim and Jane Henson established the Muppets.
1: Oh, I love it.
0: Uh, established Muppets, Inc. It's now known as the Jim Henson Company. Oh, okay. <laughs> were you a fan of the Muppets?
1: I watched the Muppets. so I didn't. Yeah. I don't know if I was a fan.
0: I mean, I like all the puppets on Sesame Street. Right. But I'd never watched The Muppet Show. Yeah. All right. Uh, 19, but our history highlight of the day, I think, I think had the most uh, impact. 1945, the Nuremberg Trials begin. Oh, yes. 24 high-ranking Nazis go on trial in Nuremberg, Germany, for atrocities committed during World War II, beginning on November 20th, 1945. The Nuremberg Trials were... Conducted by an international tribunal made up of representatives from the United States, the Soviet Union, France, and Great Britain. It was the first trial of its kind in history, and the defendants faced charges ranging from crimes against uh, peace, to crimes of war, to crimes against humanity. Lord, just, Lord Justice Geoffrey Lawrence of the British member presided over the proceedings, which lasted 10 months and consisted of 216 court sessions. Wow! I love it. It's the first time in history, instead of the winners just... Let's take the losers out and kill them. Right. We're going to put them on trial. Yeah. And you're going to be responsible for what your country did. Mm. Good. Yeah. And not the poor guy in the trenches that's forced to fight, but the guys making decisions. Decision
1: makers. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I think it had a huge impact on history. For
1: sure. You missed
0: a couple. Oh, what a Um
1: Not a hot, not, they're just, you know, little things, but fun. Uh, on this day in 1982, the Stanford band lost the football game. Do you know the story?
0: Oh, weren't they like out in the, the, there was still, the game was still going on and they went out into the field. <laughs> they to play. didn't
1: get the memo that the game was not over. <laughs> they thought the team had won. So they started their post game celebration because they believed Stanford won. However, UC Berkeley, Cal still had the ball and continued to play. It was very confusing because, again, the band was coming out onto the field from the end zone. So the two teams were going – or the the band and the team was going towards each other. Um, after catching this last pass, it says the quarterback careened through a confused horn section before <laughs> safely making it to the end zone. Um, it was very, very disappointing, of course, to Stanford fans. Huge game. It stopped their um, – their bull bull seeking status. So they, they were out. John Elway was uh, on the Stanford team at the time Hmm. and he said it was not funny at first, but it does (laughs) tend to get a little funny. Um, as time goes on, he says it gets a little funnier. And he said, quote, uh, we just wish we had the band come out for some tackling practice.
0: Oh my gosh. That's so, funny. Is yeah. there good footage of this anywhere? There is. Can we Google this and you look at Google it? You can Google it. Excellent. Oh, it's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> because and I love the idea of like trombones and big giant tubas and football guys trying to run around. Exactly.
1: Them. Right. I mean, it's, and, and just the phrase alone, right? It's the day the Stanford band lost the football game. Yes. Yes. Oh, that poor Stanford. And then this one barely makes my cutoff. um, Doesn't quite make (laughs) the history. But November um, 1999 marks the first Transgender Day of Remembrance. And this is honoring the victims of transphobic violence. And it's now annual. So it's been annual Hmm. every year since. Uh, but it was commemorating the um, murder of a 34-year-old African-American trans woman who was murdered in Boston the year prior. So uh, this was created in her honor and then has continued um, since and then. And
0: murdered because they were trans.
1: Correct. Yeah. Yep. What so is wrong so with people? creating a day of remembrance, but it does occur every day, one day after her death.
0: So. I just don't understand hatred.
1: It's tough, right? There's lots of fear. We're going to get into that, how fear starts and then how we sort of deal with it when we have questions.
0: So this today, um, you heard me say the first anti-Semitic recorded uh, knowledge of uh, anti-Semitic comments on on the radio. And this guy, Father Coughlin. I've actually known about him a long time because my interest in history, I, I like all American history, really. I mean, I'm very much generalist. We, we know that if you're a loyal listener, you know, I don't get into the Europe stuff too much uh, or other other places in the world as much. But um, I love the Old West, of course, and I love westward expansion. Uh, I'm an old cowboy nut, so. But the, my interest in history, the real focus that I just, I love the time period between World War I and World War II. And what I've always said why I like this time period is I'm fascinated that during the depression when there is 25% of our nation unemployed and there is no safety network there is no unemployment benefits and you are a farmer that's lost his job and his house and you've got a family and you're you're the jodes you're getting in a in a rambling station truck or whatever, and driving, hoping you can find a job somewhere in California, and there's no jobs, and your family is starving, and there's nobody helping you. Right. I am fascinated that while the Weimar Republic in Germany is going under to Hitler, and Mussolini's coming to power in Italy, that all these other countries that are supposed to be democracies are falling. And here in America, the fringe vote outside of Republicans and Democrats, the two main parties never increases more than about 20%. Hmm. And I've always been fascinated that if my family's starving, suddenly revolution doesn't seem like a bad thing right. if it's going to feed my family. Mm-hmm. And yeah. we never turn to that. We always just continue to vote, either Democrats or Republicans, and and, and America will prove itself and things will get better. And I love that optimism. Mm-hmm. And one of the... The points against one of those fringe elements yes. is this guy. Fringe for sure. Charles Coughlin, Father Coughlin, was on the radio and he was a presence. Okay. And as we go through this, some of these items might resonate today of things that perhaps we are experiencing today. Sure. So it's a pretty powerful and it just it, it's that favorite time period for me. And he's one of those elements that I just I don't understand. So throughout the nineteen thirties, Charles E. Coughlin, and I always thought it was pronounced Coughlin. Um, I would think my, so in too. In my younger years, I always pronounced it Coughlin. Uh, was one of the most influential men in the United States. He was a Catholic priest in the Metro Detroit area who became politically active, foreshadowing modern talk radio and televangelism. Coughlin led radio uh, led radio broadcasts that reached tens of millions of listeners. Mm-hmm. He broadcasts religious services with political overtones and expressed anti-Semitic views. He also voiced pro-Nazi opinions that made him a person of interest for the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1942. So let's talk a little bit about his background.
1: Okay. Charles Coughlin, 1891 to 1979. He was born on October 25th, 1891 in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Coughlin graduated from the University of Toronto in 1911. He then attended St. Basil's Seminary in Toronto. He was ordained as a Catholic priest in 1916. His views as priest were influenced by late 18th century Catholic teachings and emphasizing conservative clerical activism. His views were also shaped by the Basilian order to which he belonged. Founded in France in the early 19th century, they studied medieval church doctrine in the context of fierce opposition to modern economic and social developments. They believed that the church should return to its theological roots. Among other issues, they called for the church to restore prohibition against usury. Many Brazilians regarded the practice of usury as a main source of the ills that afflicted modern society.
0: Such views blended with anti-Semitism in Coughlin's radio broadcast throughout his career. In a 1930 broadcast, Coughlin attributed the current economic problems to those who profited from usury. He stated, "...we have lived to see the day that modern Shylocks have grown fat and wealthy, praised and de- defied, because they have perpetuated the ancient crime of usury under the modern racket of statesmanship." Coughlin left the Basilian Order in 1918. He then became a Dyson priest in the Diocese of Detroit. From 1916 to 1923, Coughlin was on the faculty of Assumption College in Sandwich, now Windsor, Ontario, Canada. After a chance meeting with Michael Gallagher, the Bishop of the Diocese of Detroit, he was given the opportunity to establish a new parish in Royal Oak, Michigan. This church, the Shrine of the Little Flower, served as the center of Coughlin's operations for the next 40 years.
1: In October of 1926, Coughlin broadcast his first radio address. In 1926, disturbed by the Ku Klux Klan orchestrated cross burnings on his church grounds and aware that he was unable to pay back the diocesan loan which had paid for his church, he began broadcasting his Sunday sermons from a local radio station, WJR.
0: Now, in case people are surprised, the Klan, especially in this time period, is very anti-Catholic. In fact, when the Klan gets elected in Clatsop County... Um, they throw out a number of Catholic uh, people. The fire chief, Michael Foster's uh, grandfather, was a Catholic fire chief, and they threw him out because he was Catholic.
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah, uh, Coughlin's weekly hour-long radio program denounced the KKK, appealing to his Catholic audience. His broadcasts originally taught catechism classes for children. However, he soon moved on to broadcasting religious services with political overtones. By the time of the 1929 stock market crash, Coughlin had a large, loyal audience. He'd gained the reputation of a spokesperson for the common man. In 1930, he launched a crusade against communism. His message drew upon his own fear and that of others that a communist influence was spreading in the United States. He warned, let not the working man be able to say that he has driven into the ranks of socialism by the inordinate and grasping greed of the manufacturer.
0: So should we get into uh, Coughlin and FDR? Yes. All right. So having become a U.S. citizen while in Detroit, Coughlin was an early and enthusiastic supporter of Franklin D. Roosevelt. He believed the only that only Roosevelt could pull the United States out of the Great Depression and protect the country from the perceived communist threat. Coughlin strongly endorsed Franklin D. Roosevelt during the 1932 presidential election. He was an early supporter of Roosevelt's New Deal reforms and coined the phrase, Roosevelt or ruin, which becomes pretty famous, uh, which entered common usage during the early days of the first FDR administration. Another phrase he became known for was the, New Deal is Christ's Deal. Coughlin used his radio program, The Hour of Power to persuade his followers to vote for Roosevelt in the 1932 presidential election. Roosevelt was distrustful of Coghlan from the beginning and only wanted his endorsement uh, to help get elected.
1: <laughs> well, that rings true for yes. year after year, right? Uh, once president, Roosevelt appeared to ignore Coughlin's contribution to his successful bid for presidency. He slowly distanced his administration from his unpolished populism. Nevertheless, Roosevelt continued to lose, use Coghlan's influence to help garner public support for the New Deal. Initially, Coughlin overestimated his importance to the administration. He used his radio program to support the New Deal and to attack those opposed to it. In January 1934, Coughlin testified before Congress in support of the agenda, saying, If Congress fails to back up the president and his monetary program, I predict a revolution in this country which will make the French Revolution look silly.
0: That's quite dire. It is. Because the French Revolution, far more than the American Revolution, they're taking people out into the streets and guillotating them and, yeah.
1: And to testify before Congress. But it is testifying an opinion.
0: It is. It's still an opinion. But it's still a threat.
1: But it is. He also said to the congressional hearing, God is directing President Roosevelt. When he realized that he was not going to play a key role in Roosevelt's cabinet, however, Coughlin felt betrayed. After several attempts to get the president to notice him, he turned on Roosevelt. By the end of 1935, Coughlin used his radio program to attack both the president and the New Deal.
0: Throughout the 1930s, Coughlin was one of the most influential men in the United States. A new post office was constructed in Royal Oak just to process the letters that he received each week <gasps> wow. 80,000 on average. Furthermore, the audience of his weekly radio broadcasts was in the tens of millions, foreshadowing modern talk radio and televangelism.
1: But millions in the 1930s 1930s. is impressive.
0: Yeah. So in 1935, Coughlin created the National Union for Social Justice, NUSJ, as a political action group that would represent the interests of his listeners in Washington, D.C., By the 1936 presidential election, the NUSJ had more than one million paying members. Mm. In 1936, Coughlin founded a journal entitled Social Justice. The publication provided another venue to promote his populist ideology. Uh, They tabled 16 principles as guidelines for their program for the United States. These included, we're not going to list them all, but liberty of conscience and education, nationalization of resources too important to be held by individuals, Mm. abolition of the Federal Reserve Board, return to Congress the right to coin and regulate money, rights of workers to organize unions, requisition of wealth and conscription of men in times of war, and the principle that human rights should outweigh property rights. Coughlin was ahead of his time in splitting his ticket. He supported some issues associated with the left, such as federal support to uh, prop up the dollar, and others with the right, such as America First foreign policy.
1: So during the 1920s, Coughlin's anti-Semitic views were muted on the air. But after his split with Roosevelt and with the rise of national socialism and fascism in Europe, however, he attacked Jews explicitly in his broadcasts. Some historians attribute this change to Coughlin taking advantage of rising anti-Semitism around the world in order to keep himself relevant. Based on his speeches, writings, and associations, however, he appears to have had significant anti-Semitic sentiment throughout his career. In the days and weeks after Kristallnacht, uh, Coughlin defended the state-sponsored violence of the Nazi regime. He argued that it was justified as retaliation for Jewish persecution of Christians. He explained to his listeners on November 20th, 1938, that the communistic government of Russia, the Lenins and the Trotskys, atheist Jews, and Gentiles, had murdered more than 20 million Christians and had stolen $40 billion of Christian property. Now, for years, Coughlin publicly derided international bankers, a phrase that most of his listeners understood to mean, Jewish bankers. Such anti-Semitic views were expressed on the pages of Social Justice, In a series of articles published in 1938, he lambasted Jewish financiers and their control over world politics. These articles culminated with a story recounting his own version of the infamous Protocols of the Elders of Zion. This anti-Semitic publication falsely purported to be minutes from meetings of uh, Jewish leaders who were plotting to take over the world. Because if we're going to
0: plot to take over the world, let's definitely take minutes from that meeting. Right. That's a good idea. And
1: share it with with somebody who's against so, us.
0: As war approached, Coghlan's politics shifted further toward the right. He promoted fascist dictatorship and authoritarian government as the only cure for the ills of democracy and capitalism. He associated with fascist leaders and known anti-Semitic thinkers in the Anglo-American world, including U.S. auto manufacturer Henry Ford, Dennis Fahey, professor of Holy Ghost Missionary College of Dublin, Ireland, and supporter of the French fascist movement, uh, Action Française, uh, Sir Oswald Uh, Mosley, the leader of the British Union of Fascists, Uh, Hilaire Belloc, the Anglo-American novelist, poet, and uh, debater, whose book The Jews listed Jews as a distinct racial group that could never assimilate in Europe, and Ezra Pound, a U.S. poet who spouted anti-Semitic statements and developed an admiration of Italian fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. So in a
1: 1938 broadcast, Coughlin helped inspire and publicize the creation of a political association called the Christian Front, A militia-like organization, the Front, promised to defend the country from communists and Jews. The front organized by Christian rallies, so by like B.U.Y. Uh, mm-hmm. rallies throughout the country. In New York City, police arrested several militiamen from the organization for harassing Jews on the street. Many of these were seniors, women, and children. With time, the Christian Front's language became increasingly violent. It made national news in 1940 when the FBI arrested 18 members in Brooklyn, New York, on suspicion of conspiring to overthrow the government. Its members continued to attract headlines during the early 1940s for violent acts against Jews.
0: So he was uh, an isolationist from the beginning of his career, and during World War II, he blamed Jews for inciting the strife in Europe. He vigorously opposed the United States being involved in World War II, even after Pearl Harbor. Mm. And we're running out of time, but um, not a very nice man. Right. And he never—he's still the—to his death or to his retirement, he's still the— the The father at that church. He never leaves. He he gets off the radio. Of course, at some point they finally take away his license to broadcast. But yeah. uh, millions, up to maybe thirty million people, are listening to this guy every year. Yeah, every and, day.
1: And when you have that, I mean, that is power, right? That I that you and I both agree is it. It's it's important to allow that freedom of speech, but we also have to have the freedom to have all of the information, right? The access to yeah. the rest of the information, and that's tough. In that. And and we, especially in the thirties. We, talk, we talk about time.
0: how tough it is now with the right. internet, but back then it, very, on the radio. And he's tough. doing the same thing we debate today. Yep. So
1: All right. Well there we're so you glad it. you joined us for our non-hour of power. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Go makes a mystery. We'll have a guest next week, so it won't be uh, Father Cogled. <laughs> Go make some mystery, we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you for joining us for an adventure in history. An Adventure in History is created and produced by the Clatsop County Historical Society and brought to you by KMUN.